I didn't check before I sat or I came here uh, in the pulpit, but I'm going to ask that you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm not sure what page that's on in the Pew Bible, but I trust you'll find it uh, easily. 1 Peter chapter 1. As you do that, I'm reminding you that as I've done in the past, really for most of the 21 years I've been here, first at Village and now at Grace, we're beginning the new year with a topical series, as I've often done again, and one that I prepared for in 2022 in God's providence and for a variety of reasons. That series is not uh, taking place in one month of January, which is usually when it would happen, but is spread out. And we trust God uh, in his providence for those things. So we're really looking at the third in that series. It's a very brief series. I suppose if I were to entitle the series, I might put it this way, looking back to what was important then and why it is still important today. Or I might just a little briefer, looking back, looking ahead. But I didn't get creative this year. I just chose these three sermons. And it is really personal to me, remembering back those 21 years to those things that were very important to me and things I believe the Lord wanted me to communicate to the church I came to serve in 2001 and finding, to no surprise, that those same truths are just as important and even more important to me today. We looked in the first sermon of that series at 1 Corinthians 10 it was the very first sermon I preached at Village PCA as their new pastor. The Lord in his providence allowed us to have our first time together around the Lord's table. And so the theme of that sermon was on communion with Christ. And we began in that very special way as a congregation and its pastor, remembering the fellowship and communion that we share together with the risen Christ and that we share together because of him and in him with one another so beautifully illustrated as we return this evening to that table in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And then we looked at a passage in the second sermon that I prepared to preach, but you may remember I didn't preach in that time in God's providence. It was the very first sermon I preached here in New Jersey. It was a candidating sermon, but again, I didn't preach it then. I preached another one, but I prepared two and so the last time we were together, we looked at Micah chapter 7. For me, moving from North Carolina here to New Jersey and all that God was doing in our lives, it was very important to me then to communicate to the congregation of the great compassion and love of God towards us in our times of need. I was leaving a church, not uh, in the end voluntarily, but not with great drama, just the Lord had clearly brought an end to that time. And I came to know and understand the compassion and mercy of our God in the midst of my need. And Micah 7, towards the very end, in fact, 18 through 20, is what we looked at to talk together about really what is the uh, great uh, movement of God in his compassion towards us in our times of need. And I took great comfort in it and wanted the people here to know that and also how God calls us to display the same kind of mercy in our lives. Uh, we are called to be a merciful people. Once having received mercy, we are to show mercy to others. And what mercy does is it moves us 
out of ourselves and towards those who are in need and who are hurting. This morning, finally, we come to another passage that was very important. It was the first sermon that I preached in the first series. So it would have been the second Sunday I was here that we began a series in First Peter. And I did that because I was living out a lot of what First Peter is talking about. He introduces his letter, as we'll see this morning, by writing to those who are elect exiles, strangers, pilgrims, sojourners. We were moving from North Carolina. We were coming here as strangers to this church, then village, and to its people. I was a stranger to them. They were strangers to me. But we were joined together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I began with that series because that theme of being a stranger, a pilgrim, a a sojourner, was very much present in my mind. And so I wanted to remind the people that no matter if we're moving or not, we're all still sojourners and strangers in this world. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. As I look back at that uh, sermon, I'm not preaching the same sermon, um, but I'm preaching the same text. But as I looked back, I looked at the bulletin and the bulletin you have today, with the exception of the two songs from the black songbook, is exactly what we did back in 2001. And I was amazed to see that we haven't changed. I think it's a good thing. We haven't changed our order of service, what we do in worship. Because what we do in worship is very intentional, uh, as you've heard both Pastor Fisher and I say to you over and over again. So it was a real encouragement to me to see that. But for now, I'll ask that you would stand as we read God's word. First Peter chapter one. I'm going to read verses one through nine just to give us the context. Our focus will be primarily on verses one and two. First Peter chapter one, verses one through nine. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, though those words were not spoken by me as I began to preach 21 years ago, they are spoken week after week now. And we are reminded that over these 21 years, this word read then and now this morning is still the same ever living word of God. It is true, and you are pleased as always to bless it, for it stands forever as the picture of what we are, who we are in Jesus Christ, as a reminder of the life to which you have called us. And so bless your word this morning as you blessed it then to the hearing, to the growth of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Historians tell us that John Bunyan, perhaps a name most of you in the room know, was a man of vivid imagination. Following the English Civil War about the year 1648, John Bunyan was plunged, according to his own testimony, into a religious crisis which lasted for several years and which brought him to the brink of despair. In one of his more famous works, I trust most of you have read it. I think it was one of the gifts I gave you at Christmas many years ago, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He left the account of fearful dreams, visions of this period of his life. They took, he wrote, on the almost tangible form of voices and blows and buffets, and he records the sensation of being pulled and pinched by demons sent to torment him and the threatening texts of scripture that filled his thoughts. He would emerge from that season of his life a new man. This most desperate experience, it changed him. In fact, he marks his conversion during that time, a converted man now called to preach the gospel of Christ to others, and that is exactly what he began to do. In 1660, refusing then as a minister to obey the law, which then required him to cease preaching until he conformed to the worship of the Church of England, he was arrested while preaching in the fields. He was then imprisoned off and on for the next 12 years. It was during that imprisonment, as many of you may know this morning, as you hear and are reminded of his stories, that he would write these words from what no doubt became his most famous work. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. And I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he break out with a lamentable cry saying, what shall I do? And so Pilgrim's Progress begins. This work would become one of the most enduring works of English literature, second only to the Bible, and one for one simple reason. It speaks of a journey that is common to all pilgrims who travel from this world to the world which is to come. And as such, it served 
to comfort and encourage and still does to this day countless Christians since it was first published in 1678. It is for this same reason that I believe the message of First Peter is an enduring message to pilgrims, to aliens and strangers like you and I, if you are a Christian this morning. Uh, Peter knew this by his own experience, what he needed by way of encouragement. And Peter needed encouragement. Remember the words of our Savior, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I think we can view first Peter as an answer to Jesus's prayer. He was turning by the power of God's grace now to strengthen his brothers who were with him, pilgrims, aliens, and strangers in this world. He is one who knew of the pains of persecution, the embarrassment of failure and life's difficulties. But in his grace and by his spirit, Christ strengthened him and made him to be the apostle of hope for the church. And so I am preaching on this subject this morning, this sermon, because of its relationship to 21 years ago, but because its message is enduring. It remains a message for us today as well. Now, because we're not beginning a series on First Peter, I'm going to skip the usual way we begin by looking closely at author and themes and purpose and audience. But I will say simply this. Peter is the author of this letter. There is no doubt in most people's minds that he clearly is the author of this letter. It seems that those Christians who had been dispersed throughout the area of what is known as Asia Minor or modern day Turkey, uh, that he is writing to them. So it's a general letter. It's not a specific letter to a specific church, but to believers who are literally scattered all over Asia Minor and the surrounding area. That was great debate, and we can leave those debates for now among commentators, whether the writer or the ones written to here are primarily Jewish or Gentile. Arguments are sound on both sides, but for our purposes, it really doesn't matter. The one thing that does matter is this idea and theme that we see in the very first verse as he addresses them as elect pilgrims or exiles, as the ESV says, Other words, other translations use pilgrims, strangers, aliens, and sojourners. Well, it appears that the cause of their exile was unique to this group. They were facing persecution. And God, if you read through Acts, for instance, see how he uses persecution to scatter his people all over the world. For what purpose? So that the gospel would be taken to the ends of the earth. That's the whole theme of the book of Acts. And we see that. And so he's intentionally sending persecution to spread his people out over the world. They were scattered. Yes, all over the world. They were scattered because of persecution. But it's very clear as you read the whole book of first and second Peter, the books that we understand and see that he's using this idea of pilgrim, stranger, alien, sojourner as a fitting description for all true believers And their relationship with this fallen world. We are now in the midst of a world that is not our home, Peter is saying. We belong to another place. Our home is in heaven where Christ is, as Paul says to the Colossians. And so Peter is writing to those not merely scattered in persecution, but reminding them that their whole life now has changed. They're no longer really, truly at home here in the world. 
One of the great things that we can do in our own lives as we're evaluating and thinking about the work of God's grace is to look how comfortable we feel in this world. How at home do we really feel? The, the point of the Bible is we're not to be settled or to feel in our hearts that, that this is really our home. The more comfortable we become with the world and the ways and the things of the world is more of a sign of our falling away from Christ rather than moving towards him. It, it doesn't mean we hate the world and dismiss the world and live in, in corners and in enclaves. It means simply that we understand that this is not our home and we're called for a purpose here that hopefully we'll see more of this morning. Peter speaks this way. He uses this term in this broader sense in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, for instance. Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There's the same word to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day of visitation. The simple point as we begin is this Christians by nature and because of what God has done, as we'll see, are pilgrims now strangers and aliens in this world. Now, you need to know what that means, right? We need to understand what that really looks like. And in God's providence, again, remarkably, in our study of the life of the Old Testament fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, especially last Sunday, you will remember that with respect to Jacob and all the fathers, this was the key identifying mark of who they were as God called them to walk not by sight, but by faith. Jacob understood that he was a stranger, an alien in this world, is, is asking his children to take his body back to be buried in the cave in Machpelah was a testimony in earthly terms that he understood he belonged to another place and another world, not Egypt, not this world, but the world and the promise that God had given to them, a promised land which he by faith understood was not a cave but was ultimately the very promise of heaven itself, though they could not flesh that out or understand that so fully or completely as we do. But that's why the writer of Hebrews says what he does in chapter 11. These, speaking of the church fathers of old, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them he, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return to it. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's a picture of a pilgrim, a stranger. The word originally meant one who dwelt in a hired house, a tenant, a renter. The original means those who dwell among a people that is not their own. They're not among their own people. They're sojourners. Pilgrims would be then the best word to use. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are in this world 
And as Peter will note and we will read and have read, this reality carries with it powerful implications that deeply affect how we view this world and how we view our lives. Unbelievers, those who are outside of Christ, are very much at home in this world. The teachings, the philosophy of this world, they're very much at home with it. We see it everywhere we look around us, how quickly and easily so many people are simply believing and continuing to believe the philosophies and the teachings of this world. But we are Christians. We are strangers and aliens to us. Sometimes you turn on the news if you watch the news as I do sometimes still, I'm still watching a little bit, but sometimes you watch the news and you think, what, what in the world has happened to this world? And the answer is nothing. It's going the course it will always go. It's the world that we belong in and the character of that king who rules in that world and this world that we long to be like. According to the apostle, our lives are to exhibit this very reality and we are those who belong, as we uh, realize that we are those who belong to another world. Our worlds are display, our lives are display that character of that world and of that king. That's the argument Peter's going to make throughout this letter. I've not traveled much in my life, certainly not as much as my children have in the ages where they are. But I do know enough to know if you do travel, it's really wise, especially to a different foreign place, it's really wise to pick up a good travel guide, a really good travel guide to introduce you to the, the, the world that you're going to, the nation or city that you're visiting. First Peter is a travel guide for this world as those who are traveling to another world. And as we travel and as we move through this world, it's difficult and it's dangerous. Think Pilgrim's Progress. But we follow one who has already walked through this world, and he's already told us that we will have tribulation in this world. But take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Now, my purpose this morning is to reiterate these things, to remind you that this is who you are. If you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand that. Together, we need to remember that. And so that we might and might be encouraged as well, Peter offers, I believe, in these two verses, four separate encouragements that come together to form one picture. But the four encouragements of these verses is where I want to spend the rest of my time and our time this morning. The first one is really the fountainhead. Notice what he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. We're pilgrims, we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're strangers, but we are elect, we are chosen. That's the first comfort that Peter tells us. The doctrine of God's calling, of God choosing a people for himself. You'll notice if you look at the rest of the verse before he, or after he introduces the places to which they are scattered, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so really a proper reading of this would be to those who are the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It is according to foreknowledge that God has chosen. Let us be clear, it is not that God looked down the corridor of time, as so often is said, 
that he saw who would choose him freely according to their own ability, and then backing up God being outside of time, then chooses them based on what he sees. That is a misunderstanding of this idea of foreknowledge, of knowing beforehand. The emphasis on that word is knowing beforehand, that we were known by God, that our election and our choosing by God is rooted and based in the fact that God determined and does know us before time began. It's a reference to his setting of his love upon us, determining that he will love us even before we were born and before time began. And so that election, that choosing, that sovereign choice of God, and, and we don't have time, of course, to go into all of what this means. But the, the comfort here is that as we walk as strangers and aliens, we are those chosen by God to do so. It is, in fact, his choosing, according to foreknowledge, that changes our status from being comfortable here to being strangers here. He's already delivered us in Christ, Christ having gone to prepare a place for us, to a new home. Our home is not here because he chose us, and he chose us according to his foreknowledge. It is the chief comfort I have always taught and argued. Election is the chief comfort of the Christian's pilgrimage. As we are pilgrims in this world, as we travel through the, the dangerous journey that is before us, we do so in the comfort and knowledge that God has chosen us and that he's leading us home to be with him forever. Spurgeon, who had a lot to say about the doctrine of election, if you've ever read him, I trust you have said this. Whatever he said, whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. To me, and I agree with him, to me it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation. And those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. If they could but know that the Lord had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. It is the sweetest doctrine known to the Christian, and it truly is. It truly is the sweetest of doctrines to know that we were loved before time began. And that is the title of a poem I came across, someone wrote, and it goes like this. Before mother and father knew I might be on the way, before she ever held me close, before he ever taught me to work, before I had a name, I was known and loved. Before I was ever a probability to them, I was a reality to God. I was loved before time. Before I met my first slobbering friend crawling toward my crib, before I ever rode two on a bike, before I ever held a girl's hand, before the first buddy, before the first best friend, there was one friend who knew me well. I was loved before time. Long before I began this adult life, before I knew that life was hard, when every week had its pain and its dollar quota, before I knew that life would be a swinging a hammer sitting behind a desk, before I knew that life was demanding, there was one who planned it that way because he loved me. I was loved before time. Before my conscience ever hurt, before my sins glared back at me, 
before my lostness became apparent, before I ever began to move back to him. He knew me, he loved me, he chose me before time began. That speaks rather well for my future. And it does speak well for your future. And it is a great encouragement as we think about being pilgrims and strangers and aliens in this world. Election is the fountain from which all the blessings of Christ flow into our lives. But there's a second encouragement. Again, we could spend a lot of time, the whole time on election, but we won't. I trust as you heard those things, you are greatly encouraged. But let me look at the second. Notice what he says, according to the foreknowledge of God and in the sanctification of the spirit. That word in can be translated various ways by the sanctification of the spirit, according to the sanctification of the spirit. But what it means is this, that as God has chosen us, selected us, called us according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, he has done so for the purpose that we might be sanctified by the spirit set apart The doctrine is this, those whom God elects and chooses and calls in the fullness of time, as he calls us to himself by his grace, his purpose is that we might be sanctified. Now, sanctified is a word that means in the Bible to be set apart. It's something that means to be made holy as the instruments of the Old Testament sacrificial system were set apart for their use, as we set apart the common elements of the Lord's table for their holy use. So it is that believers called by God are set apart. We're set apart from sin, for instance. We're set apart unto God. Now that's done initially when God first works in our lives. The first thing he does is he takes us and he sets us apart from these things in a definitive way so that we are as holy right now before the presence of God in Christ as we will ever be. That's our positional holiness, our holiness in Christ before the Father. But there is, we know, a progressive, and Peter is concerned about in these chapters, a progressive holiness, a sanctification by the Spirit that progresses through our lives We are called to be holy, set apart as holy, and we are being made holy day by day according to the purpose and plan of God. God chooses and God makes those whom he chooses holy, more like Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says that God does all this so that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus, who is the perfect representation of true holiness and righteousness of life. And in him that is who we are. And in him, that is who we are becoming. How wonderful and how encouraging it is as pilgrims and strangers and aliens in this world that we have a God, a father who is committed to our holiness, who every day is transforming our lives, causing us to hate sin more and more and to love Jesus and to love him more and more. That's what this means And it's meant to be an encouragement to us. We're not left to ourselves. But God is ever working and moving this work that he has begun in us to its completion in Jesus Christ. Brother and sister, as you pilgrim through this world, are you seeing the work of God's grace and sanctifying you by his spirit? It is the work of his spirit. As he takes the word and presses it into your heart and mind, perhaps even this morning, just being reminded that you're not to be like this world is simply a reminder that God has called you to something different, 
to holiness of life, holiness in all of your being, in all of your character, in your words, in everything you do. Yes, we fail. Yes, we will fail always. But the work of God is progressing, and it progresses to that final end at his coming again, when we will be made like him. Thirdly, and moving quickly through this, for and again to the obedience to Jesus Christ. Uh, It may be redundant to say this, as, as Peter does here, sanctification by the Spirit or in the Spirit would naturally mean then an evidence of more and more obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think what's referenced here is really that uh, perhaps more focused on that initial obedience to the gospel itself, that these to whom Peter writes are those who believed the gospel and obeyed it. The Bible speaks in several places about the need to obey the gospel. Did you know that? People say, well, I can't do that. If you tell me I have to do it, what does that mean? Well, you you do have to do it. And that's part of the whole picture of God's sovereign work of grace, that that he actually grants us the grace to obey the command of the gospel. Paul said that in Acts, God commands everywhere, everyone everywhere to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who is coming again who was raised to new life, were were to believe that gospel. And I think this grace of obedience is a reminder and an encouragement that as we walk in this life as pilgrims, God is the one who works in us to give us the grace and by his grace to obey him. Remember the words of Paul in the book of Philippians in chapter 1. He he talks about these things as Peter does. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened, he says, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For, he says, and here's the point, it has been granted to you. You might say it's been graced to you that for your that to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. The grace of God enabling us to believe the gospel when we heard it, to open our hearts and minds and to embrace Christ. That for obedience to Jesus Christ is again in the initial coming to faith in Christ and the ongoing continuing life that we live in Christ. That's why God chose you. That's why God chose me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ to do this work in you and in me. And it's a great comfort that he's done it. Think of Pilgrim's Progress and sell often, whether it be faithful prior to Vanity Fair or hopeful after Vanity Fair, how often Christian needed to be reminded over and over again of the work of God's grace in his life. As he took his eyes off the road or the promises of God, both faithful and Christian were there to remind him and to point him to obedience to Christ, because that's why God called him, set him apart, called him out of the city of destruction, put him on a road that leads to the celestial city. It's the grace of obedience that we have in Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ. And then finally, 
Peter says, the sprinkling with his blood, that is the blood of Jesus. I'm using the word Peter will use later in this very chapter, ransomed by his blood. We are those who've been ransomed and bought by the blood of Christ. The only blood, the only sacrifice that is able to cleanse us from our sins. The washing of the blood of Christ over our lives so that by that washing, our sins are forgiven. This is what Peter says in verse 19 of this chapter. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves now as pilgrims, right? With fear throughout your time of exile. There's that theme again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were ransomed by his blood to walk as a pilgrim, And to know that as we walk day by day, our sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the blood of Christ is one of the great and precious promises and encouragements we have. That as we falter, as Christian faltered in Pilgrim's Progress, fell out of the way, there was always the remembrance of that grace where his burden was taken off his back and into the tomb, forever gone, out of sight, Because that is what it means to be ransomed, to be bought, purchased by the blood of Christ. To be sprinkled by his blood is a a picture of the Old Testament, the renewal of the covenant in Exodus 24, where Moses sprinkled the altar, but also sprinkled the people with the blood of the sacrifice. It was a foreshadowing, a picture of what God would do for us in Christ. And so he takes an exiled pilgrim people and he sprinkles us with his blood the blood of his son, to encourage us along in our journey, to know that we are reconciled to God now through the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't need to point out perhaps to you as we look at the whole now that you have Trinitarian formula here, a very clear picture of the Trinity, God the Father foreknowing, electing according to foreknowledge, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the precious blood of Christ to whom we are called to obey and walk after the beautiful picture that salvation is the work of our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so for pilgrims who walk in a dangerous journey in a very dangerous world, it's really helpful to know that who stands with us, beside us, and over us and over our enemies is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the full measure, if you will, of his power, his authority, his rule guides and leads us. He ends these verses with a simple prayer, a blessing, and how fitting it is as he writes to pilgrims. So may the grace and the peace of God be multiplied to you. That God will give grace, he'll give peace. He'll multiply it as we have need in this pilgrimage that we are on. And it's our great comfort and assurance to know that as strangers in this world, we walk every day and every moment by his grace, not by our own strength or wisdom or ability, but because we are in a right relationship with God, our holy God, through Jesus Christ. His grace attends us. His peace lives within us. So in the midst of whatever trials we face, he is faithful. This is how John Calvin summarizes the whole in his commentary He says, our salvation flows from the gracious election of God. 
There's the fountainhead. But that is to be ascertained by the experience of faith because he sanctifies us by his spirit. And then there are two effects or ends of our calling, even renewal into obedience and absolution by the blood of Christ. And further, that birth are also the work of the spirit. You see, there's the full picture, the full encouragement that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. God's election and calling, brothers and sisters, is what now sets apart us as pilgrims in this fallen world. We have been, by God, intentionally set apart from this world. We've been removed, as it were, from it, placed in the spirit and with Christ in our heavenly home already. We're already there, Paul says in Ephesians 1, in Colossians 3. We're we're already there. Our, Our life, Paul says, is hidden with Christ in God. That's where we already are. And so all of us this morning who have confessed the name of Jesus Christ, trusted in him as personal Lord and Savior, which is the command of the gospel, are pilgrims and strangers and aliens in this world. But here's the problem. The world will always try to present itself as our home. It will always tempt us to feel comfortable here, to pull up a chair, to settle down a little, to rest. In that sense, there is no, for the believer, no true rest in this world. There can't be. Our rest, our comfort, our joy, everything that we long for is not here. It's somewhere else. It's in heaven where Christ is. What leads John to write in his first epistle, do not love then the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What we can touch with our hands, what we see with our eyes, this world all around us is not our home. It's just a stopping point along the way. We have a heavenly home And Christ has gone before us to prepare it. In fact, Jesus has set the example for us, hasn't he? Can't we say, rightly so, that he is the first and greatest pilgrim? He left his heavenly home, came into this world on behalf of sinners like you and like me. Peter tells us, in fact, he uses the same language, doesn't he? Later on in verses 20 and 21 of this chapter, He tells us that Jesus is uniquely the chosen one of God, for he was foreknown, that is Jesus, before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Paul tells us he laid aside his glory. He did not think equality with God was something that he had to hold on to because he himself was God. He entered into the earthly journey on our behalf. He first walked the road that he placed us on in his sovereignty when he called us. He dealt with all the dangers, all the trials, Apollyon, and every trial that Christian faced. He dealt with them before, and he won the victory in it all. 
He bore the punishment for our sins. He died, was buried, and raised again for all who believe. And so he is truly our hope and our life. He is our great encouragement as we walk this pilgrim journey. Paul says, and I've referenced it, if you've been raised then with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You, you died to this world. You died to sin. You died to everything this world stands for. It's why Christian and eventually hopeful were able to pass through Vanity Fair. They died to those things. They weren't appealing to them any longer. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a wonderful, wonderful encouragement and thought. What a glorious day that will be when we appear with him in glory. But between here and there, between here and heaven, lies a journey for all of us. At times it is filled with persecutions, and we may be, as Peter says, grieved by many and various trials. But take heart, Christian. Be encouraged, pilgrim and stranger in this world. He's called you to himself. You are his. He has set his love upon you, and that can never be removed. He has sanctified you and is sanctifying you in Christ, making you like him every day. He's given you grace, which delights in obeying him. And he's sprinkled you with the blood of the spotless lamb of God and cleansed you from all of your sins. Your burden, like Christians, has fallen off your back, no longer for you to bear and so you and I can live in this fallen world as those who long for a better country while we live here and now for his glory, calling others to follow in our steps, in his steps, really. 21 years later, for me at least, and I trust for you, these truths are still just as, if not more important today as they were then. The only thing that has changed in 21 years is how many of our fellow pilgrims have already gone on to their reward and to their rest in glory. I debated whether or not I should list them all. I know who they are, but I was fearful that I would forget someone, so I didn't. So let your minds wander through the membership of Village Presbyterian Church, of Evangelical Presbyterian Church, of Grace Presbyterian Church, and let them think of those pilgrims and fellow uh, journeyers, those angel or aliens and strangers who have already gone on to their reward. And now they wait for us to come home. When my children were very young, I would be away at a conference, usually Banner of Truth conference or General Assembly. Those trips would last perhaps a week or less. And for a while, when I would return in many of those years, again, when my children were very young, they would, no doubt, with the encouragement of my wife, make homemade signs placed on the front door or in the house that simply said, Welcome home, Dad. They had hand-drawn pictures on them. I've saved many of them, and those memories are still precious to me today. Now, as much as you know me and know that I love my theology— you would have agreed that I would have been less than a kind father if I had pulled them aside and said to them, Now, children, remember, 
this is not really our home. You really should have said and written something like this. Welcome to your temporary residence until you go to heaven, Dad. I would have been a bad dad if I ever did that. <laughs> I knew what they meant. As children, they knew before coming here that North Carolina was our home. When we came here, they knew that New Jersey was now our home in a very real sense. And I think what God was doing then and what he continues to do, even to this day, is in the purest joys and experiences, the very best that we experience in our home here on earth. It is but a pale picture and foretaste of the fullness of joy of our true home in heaven. God is good to us. He's gracious in those moments, and perhaps they are too few for many of us. In those moments, it's just a pale foretaste. It doesn't even begin, but it begins at least, right? There will be no need for theological correction when the Lord takes us to himself in glory. We're bannered over the entrance of that glorious celestial city. We will read those words in their truest and fullest sense. Welcome home. And then fellow pilgrims, aliens, and strangers in this world, then and only then will we be truly home, because home is where the heart is, and our hearts are there with Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the great encouragement you are giving and have given to pilgrims and strangers and aliens in this world. You've not left us to wander aimlessly, but you've set us on a path a path that will lead to our home in heaven. That is our home. Help us to live as those who have that as their home, that we might be faithful in all that you've called us to do here in this life, and that with us we might see the joy of bringing many with us who have heard the message of the gospel, who have left the things of this world by your sovereign grace, and who walk alongside of us to our heavenly home where Christ is. Grant us these joys, we pray in Jesus' name.